Jamie Hopkins is a managing partner of Well Solutions at Carson Group, and he's got a gazillion letters after his name, which we'll talk about in a moment. And uh, I assure you, they're all real letters. None of them are made up. And uh, I'm excited, though, because we were talking before we started today that we were just at a conference in San Diego, you know, sharing ideas. And so basically what we want to talk about, he's a nationally recognized writer, educator, researcher whose work has been published in financial and legal journals and national publications such as Forbes, Investment News and Market Watch. And Jamie's going to talk to us about trends in the financial planning field and succession and continuity planning, which is big on my radar. So welcome, Jamie. Hey, it's good to see you again, as you were saying uh, yeah, before. I think it was about 72 hours ago when we saw each other <laughs> in real life. Uh, so it's great to be on. And uh, thanks, everyone else, for listening here today. Yeah, we're excited to have you and all your wisdom. So the first thing I want to start off is what are the biggest themes and mistakes that you see today playing out in financial planning? And I know it's a broad question, but I referenced the 4% rule. And the reason why that's so critical, as you know, we're in a new market now mm -hmm. with this tragic situation in Europe. We're post-COVID. And I'm just curious from your view, what you see that can help our listeners and people saying, hey, what am I assuming that may in fact you know, not be correct? There are a lot of things that people assume in life that aren't correct. And it's one of those things that's kind of challenged the things you know to be true. And I'll start off not in financial, and then we'll, we'll work our way back to the 4% uh, finding, as you brought up. I actually have a sign I, 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 somewhere around. I have, it's not a rule. And, uh, it, you know, it's a finding. <laughs> and it, it's a very interesting thing. But we'll get to that. So one of the things that I always ask people, I go, and it's funny, I've done this for a long time, but uh, I don't think I've changed the uh, percent of people in the world yet. But <laughs> When you when you see things uh, about uh, you know Napoleon, I always ask people like you know you know Napoleon and is a general and you know however your view on Napoleon was that most people know one thing about Napoleon outside of the fact that he was a general is that there's something called the Napoleon complex, which was named after right short individuals like Napoleon who had this complex. Well. So that's like the number one thing people always tell me. Well, interestingly enough, Napoleon wasn't short. He was an above average height person in his time. Wow. And it, it, like, yeah, it's a shocking thing, right? Because right. your whole life, you're like, well, Napoleon, this little short guy, you can see some cartoon drawing of him like a fat little short guy on a horse. That was literally propaganda during the wars that were occurring. They were drawing him as a short little fat guy to really discredit him. And that oh. is, and, and even though the fact that we know that for a fact that he was an above average height person, it's lasted till today. And they named a complex after him that has nothing to do with being short. <laughs> You're <laughs> so right. Like, yeah. Is, yeah. And I would have known if you asked me that question, I would have gotten it wrong too, based on what I knew of that. Yeah and, yeah, and that's a fascinating thing to me, right? That this this misconception about a fact has persisted and continued for right hundreds of years now. And and that always to me just opens up the conversation about well, think about all the other things you probably think are true, <laughs> right? right? Which might not be. And when you get to finance, it's a very interesting thing because um, a lot of the stuff that works well for us in regular life does not work well in the financial world. A lot of stuff gets flipped on its head. So uh, one thing is you know like when you're thinking about day to day. 
the biggest thing day to day is actually kind of to stay alive. I know that sounds kind of you know morbid or, or basic, but yeah. our bodies and our, like our conditioning is like, I don't walk in front of fast moving objects. Why? Because then I might not exist anymore. But oddly enough, in the finance world, it's almost all kind of long-term planning, right? We yeah. actually aren't doing a ton of daily survival in the financial planning world. And that so goes against our nature that we're much more about today from a consumption, from a survival technique standpoint. And then all of a sudden we get to finance and it's like, well, you got to save for 30 years. And then you got to spend down your assets for another 30 years. And your body and mind is like, well, none of that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to consume today because if I don't consume today, I won't be here tomorrow. And so that becomes a very hard thing. Now, I'll go to the 4% uh, one here too, and then I'll hit one more topic. So there's this thing, uh, the 4% rules, how it's often defined, which was a finding back in the 1990s by uh, an individual named Bill Bangin, who looked at how much you could spend down from a 50-50 retirement portfolio historically in the US and not run out of money. And he found it's around 4%. And so this is stuck, and it's kind of been defined as the safe withdrawal rate or a 4% rule. And again, it's always important to understand and that's a historical context finding. It is in no way predictive of the future, right? Past performance does not guarantee future performance, but it's a good guideline. It's a good rule of thumb to start conversations. But if you start looking at, well, that was assuming, you know, bond yields of, you know, four or 5% average. Well, what are bond yields today? I can't buy government bonds at 5% today. So if you rerun that model, assuming the rates that are in here today, a lot of people end up with numbers closer to maybe 3.2%. And again, that's a model. It's not guaranteed to what's going to happen. Now, that does shock a lot of people because people think, wow, I'm going to have a million dollars. I'm heading to retirement and I'm going to be fine. What that research says essentially is that you can send about you know forty thousand to thirty two thousand, then adjust that for inflation each year out of a million dollars. That's not a lot of money, and so I think that's yeah. a rewiring that people have to do about their mindset. And then I'll do one more. I know it's a, a long answer, but I had a really great conversation going back to the conference that we were at about this, which is overconfidence. Okay. Confidence, generally speaking, is a good thing. You believe in yourself. But what is often not as good of a thing is really what you just say, confidence or overconfidence in your ability to predict the future. We're actually not very good at that. But yeah. once once you get some success at something, you believe that you always have that success at it. And mm-hmm. there's actually not like a lot of good research that proves that out. So we see this in the financial world where you think, oh, I picked a really good stock, so I can pick the next one myself too. Or I picked the last recession. Right. So I can pick the next recession. Oh, this is a mm-hmm. bubble. The whole point of bubbles is that we don't know if they're a bubble. If everyone knew, then we wouldn't have a bubble. Right. right. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's a challenge for people. And actually, Daniel Kahneman, who's a famous behavioral finance researcher, Nobel Prize winner, uh, he's actually stated before that overconfidence is the biggest risk to the individual investor. Right. And as you were talking, I wrote down thinking fast and slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wrote that down. It's it's yeah. one of my favorite books. It's one mm-hmm. of my favorite books. You could go back and read that book every year and you could get something new out of it. Yeah. So it's- overconfidence would be a big one. And like we said, the 4% or the 3.2, those I think are huge, especially in a market that we really haven't seen in many, many years, both sort of pressure on the bond market and pressure on the equity market with no place to hide. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the those distribution ones is you know I use that language finding, and there's a researcher Barry Sachs, and I've borrowed that from him because he said you know it, the reason we call it a finding is because we found it. Right. <laughs> right. It's a, and he's like, and a lot of people want to put too much on research findings that they're somehow predictive or they design the rest of how the world is going to work. They're very useful. But, you know, I can argue I'm an attorney by trade. I could argue either sides of that. Um, there's research from people going back into, you know, uh, 2010 that said, look, the 4% rule is dead. It won't work. Well, fast forward, if you took 4% from like 2010 to today, you're actually probably not going to run out of money in retirement, oddly enough, right? Even though right, right. a lot of crazy stuff has happened in that time frame, the market outperformed in air quotes, if you can't see me, expectations yeah. through that time period. So again, how good were we at then? No better at predicting it then than I'm assuming we're going to be at predicting it today. <laughs> right. No, great point on that. So speaking of being a, a recovering lawyer as they say, right? Of all the credentials that you have, um, which, if any, would you point to, if, if there is one, that was the most helpful? And I want to share with our audience that I think, I mean, I was reading another article today about the knowledge power now, especially, you know, in the world of whether it's crypto or finance or law, that there's very, basically a concentration of power among those that have these unique skill sets, and probably for better or worse, there's sort of this big gap, you know, between the average person in the corporation today and those that have that unique skill set. Obviously, great for those that have the skill set. But if you could pick one, what what would you uh, what would you default to if you had to pick one? Yeah, I guess if I, I I don't know if there's one. It's a it's not a great answer. I've learned something from most of the programs I've been through, uh, and, and I could go through some quickly. So you know. I think depending on what realm you're talking about, right? A lot of stuff is domain specific. So that's a that's an important takeaway, right? It's depending on the domain. So my law degree is incredibly important for me. I became a better writer, uh, you know, better communicator through that. I will tell you probably the least one that I use anymore. I, I have an MBA, a master's in business. And while I like that, uh, I've actually found that probably some of those lessons are too much in textbooks and not enough in the practical world. Mm -hmm. and Interestingly enough, there's actually research that shows that fund managers that get MBAs actually underperform other fund managers. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it's not saying MBA is bad, right? And it, they're more designed about business. But I think there's an assumption from uh, there was for a while that you, you get this MBA education and you can apply that in any domain, including investment management. And it has actually shaken out not to be true. I'm a CFP okay. professional. And that one's important to me because I think that's an important standard to long term raise up the industry. Not everybody has that, right? Like, you know, yep. and that's totally fine. Uh, but I think long term, that is important for our profession. And then for what I love, though, I was part of building one, which was a retirement income program called RICP. And okay. that one, you know, I love that because that's really where we got deep into a very specific domain or job function, which is distribution of income. And to me, now where I am in my career, whenever I do a new program, I want to go more and more narrow, right? Less and less broad. So the last yep. uh, one I just did was a, a chart, like a, a essentially a philanthropy uh, one looking at mm -hmm. different ways to set up charitable giving strategies. And like, that's really powerful, but it's only useful because I did all that backend education and work to me, right? If I had just hopped to that, I think I'd be mixing the bigger picture. 
Okay. So speaking of going um, sort of deep and focused, I know that among the things you love to do in your spare time, marathon running, um, we talked about, you know, I've got my aura ring on for what I like to do to track, but can you give our audience a sense for, I've never run marathons. I do like running, but I've never been able to right around the five or seven mile mark. You know, you know what I say? No, I go, I'd rather be doing boxing. No offense. I love the boxing and I love the martial arts, but I can appreciate someone who can go beyond that. So give people a sense of what your training regimen is like and has that changed over time? It's a great question, and it has changed over time, my training regimen. Uh, I go back in time, I was, uh, you know, for the better part of my life, a swimmer. I swam on scholarship in college, Division One, Davidson College. I was captain of the team. I grew up swimming uh, under a six-time Olympic head coach, Bob Bowman. And if his name doesn't ring a bell, that's Michael Phelps's coach. Michael and I are about a month apart in age and swam, uh, you know, almost every day together for about 15 years. So, and I've got to swim with a bunch of other, uh, Olympic gold medalists too. And, you know, I, I got to see that process during that time of what it took to go from good to great at something. It's not that North Baltimore Aquatic Club, which is a 250 person team at a North Baltimore, somehow has magic water and we all swim faster, right? I mean, that's just not true. We don't have better athletes there than other places, uh, but we had a better process. We had a better coach. And then eventually, you know, that trickled into building a culture of winning there. But it was a lot about doing small things, right? So, uh, you know, I didn't didn't follow this when I was younger, but like eating. And yeah. I remember uh, yeah. uh, we had a nutritionist. It's like you you can't outwork out a bad eating habit, right? Like yeah. no matter how hard you train, you can't outwork it. Now, maybe at 17 and 18, you can, <laughs> yeah. but eventually you can't. And so, you know, we, we always looked at it as, you know, taking care of that. And here's a really fun story. I tell this one a lot, which is yeah. you go back then, uh, think about 1990s. If people can visualize this one. It's 1990s uh, NFL football or college football. Yeah. And you'll look on the field and there were these big stretching circles and lines and everybody was pulling their foot, you know, far back as they yeah. could. Yeah. And now you think about it and go, how does the game start now? And you don't see any of that. Well, what are they doing now? Right. They're shuffling, they're running, they're ducking under things, right. It's completely changed. And coming out of UCLA back in the 1990s, there was research about static stretching and that static stretching that like pulling your arm all the way to the side. Not only was it not improving athletic outcomes, it was actually increasing the amount of injuries. Wow. Right. Okay. Yeah. Going back to the first part, what are the things that we thought were true? People have been doing static stretching for thousands of years. And then all of a sudden we figured out for thousands of years, we've been doing it wrong. Right. It made sense, right? Oh, we're going to stretch out our muscles, but it was actually increasing the amount of injuries. So since then it's completely changed to movement-based stretching. Now, visually, you can probably remember Michael Phelps, right? And how did he stretch? He was flapping his wings, right? Like, yeah, throwing them right. And people remember that. And it was visually jarring back then. And we were on that first kind of, you know, group probably of top tier athletes that had changed our stretching. But now that's true everywhere. You go to a CrossFit gym, you yeah. watch the NBA, the NFL, nobody really does that anymore. And there's a little bit of stretching, but you even think runners in marathons, they don't stretch that way anymore. They're all jogging back and forth, completely right. different uh, piece. So that's something I've had in my life to kind of reduce injuries. Answering the question a little bit further, I did run for 3,004 consecutive days outside. Um, it's a 
pretty tough thing to do from really injury, mental time management. And I, I couldn't have been able to do that at different points in my life. And part of it was I had to commit to something that I actually knew might not be the healthiest thing in the world for me. Running 3,004 consecutive days outside is not necessarily good for your joints or your right. back or, you know, right. and I was okay with that because I had a particular goal in mind and I, I wanted to show a level of grit. I wanted to do it. I ran Boston. I did some Ironmans during there. Um, but what I had to learn was how to listen to my body, because if you're going to not take a day off in over eight years, right, you can't get injured. So you got to listen to when is something too much? When can you push yourself and, and actually like be okay stopping at a different point where, right. you know, sometimes when you're training for something, you're like, oh, I'm going to push through the pain. Well, if you need to do something for eight and a half years, it isn't always necessarily about pushing through the pain. It's about being smart with your body. And in now, fact, yeah. in fact, they're saying now, as you know, a lot of injuries deal with inflammation and the biggest mm -hmm. thing that everyone has to deal with, whether you're an athlete or as I tell my clients that are retiring is fighting inflammation. In the body is key. It's number one. Yeah. It's a inflammation is, yeah, that, that's been really interesting too, right? About how inflammation is probably causing a, right. A majority of people's health issues, right. From different yep. things. Absolutely. Um, it'll be interesting to watch that as it develops too, right. There's certain things about, you know, I, I think I've read some stuff about like the dental implants, right, and certain things, right, cause inflammation in your body, and it can actually cause additional other long-term things, even screws and people's wrists, stuff like that. Um, so it'll be just very interesting to see how that kind of research progresses. But yeah, it's it's kind of about taking care of your your body and then also knowing what your goal is. And my goals change. So as I got older, you know, when I started that streak, I, I didn't have a wife. I didn't have kids. When I finished it, I had two kids and a wife and a dog. Yeah. And, you know, running every day was no longer part of my core, you know, kind of long-term goals. And instead, I wanted to be healthy when I'm 75, 85 years old, playing with grandkids and great-grandkids. So I just kind of walked away one day. I said, hey, this is it. I was actually doing a presentation with the Bipartisan Policy Center in D.C. And I told the group, I think today is the last day. And it was the last day. <laughs> Good for you, though. You know, learning how to adapt and change is so important. And although we won't have time today, the next book I'm working on called Balanced Wealth is going to be for clients and people about saying, you know, my tagline is, what good is a seven figure portfolio if you're six feet under? Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what I'm working on. But uh, kudos to you for figuring that out. So shifting a little bit back to the financial planning, um, what are some of the biggest disruptions you see happening now? You know, these sort of tectonic shifts um, in financial planning. I'm curious what what you see from that angle. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's ever enough time to discuss all of those, but <laughs> right. Exactly. I think the easy one to start with is technology is shifting this. Some days we probably, you know, kind of overestimate how much it'll shift in the course of a year and underestimate how much it shifts in the course of a decade. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's true for people. If you actually look at that, how much we think we can accomplish in a year, we tend to overestimate, but in a decade, we underestimate it. So I think okay. that's true with technology right now. You know, I think every, if we look back in 
every three months, you might say, oh, tech hasn't really changed a whole lot. But when I go back a decade and I start thinking about all the technologies that really weren't even being discussed to then things like today, and you're thinking about like things like the metaverse. I don't even really pay attention to the metaverse too much as it is today. But you know, that in five years might be really important. But right now, you kind of shrug at it. You think about things like Twitter and Facebook and Zoom wasn't even a word that people knew, right? Yeah. Five yep. years ago, Zoom is a part of people's daily lives. And you're like, oh, yeah, that is true. I did, didn't think about that. Um, FaceTime didn't exist 10 years ago. And now grandparents FaceTime their kids on iPads, right? So tech is evolving. And all of that is changing the interaction that we're having with our finances. You know, apps, we log in. And, you know, I remember depositing a check, right? I'd still go there. I don't really have to go anywhere to deposit checks anymore. I don't even get that many checks. I don't use that many checks. And tech right. has started to shift that. Yeah. I, so that's going to continue. Financial planning software, too. Analysis is getting better as data improves. Data is probably the biggest mover of the future and disruptor. But there are still areas that are lagging. And so when I say lagging, those are things that will be disrupted, too. The trust world is so far behind the rest of the world on tech. That's going to yeah. be disrupted. Insurance is still way behind. Yeah. Um, I, I think smart contracts, a lot of insurance companies are spending a lot of money on, um, whether or not they ever fully figure that out. But they are spending a lot of money trying to figure out that better underwriting for life insurance. That's a big tech thing that really from a data side will come because, um, right, look, underwriting was just a person doing data analysis, right? Eventually, you don't need the person to do it anymore. You can put that in and, you know, algorithms can get there. Uh, and I think, by the way, I think AI, as we've seen, mm -hmm. probably going to be more accurate anyway. As we've seen this, you know, the famous one where they had uh, what? They had AI judge the favorite wines. I remember that study mm -hmm. and, and AI outproduced these wine experts, which was humbling. And then the famous one about judges uh, granting bail. And I think Malcolm Gladwell wrote about that, right? And how the AI program did better than the judges, which was humbling. Correct? Yeah. So if you look at the the judge one too, is is crazy because the judges are so influenced by what part of the day it is. Correct. So yeah. A little bit of a tip, right? If you if you ever get end up in jail, you want the very first meeting of the day with the judge. The likelihood of getting bail just essentially decreases the longer the judge is working, right? Correct. So yeah. Get there first thing in the morning, high probability get out. If you're the last one in the day, you're going back in, right? Like that's basically the outcome. It really isn't yeah. that much about fairness. So yeah, you know, it, taking some of those kind of biases out of the human element of this, right? Just being tired, yeah. being grumpy, having eaten, being doing it for a long time. You know, AI and, and algorithms won't wear out like that. They don't get tired, right? Because it's four o'clock versus one o'clock and, it, you know, we don't need to give it lunch. So that, a lot of that's going to yeah. be very disruptive. And actually, it's like positive to some degree. I think the balance in all this becomes, you know, we don't not all technology advancements are always good. Right. Some mm -hmm. tech advancements can can be bad. You know, I'd argue some of the stuff that happened with Robin Hood a year or two ago. I don't know if that was good or bad yet. Right. We got expansion of people investing. We, but then we also got these meme stock crazes, people going after one stock that really had no value. We've got a more mm -hmm. pump and dump you know, kind of action occurring around crypto and single stocks again, which can be very abusive, people using power and leverage and, um, you know, kind of get other people to invest. And then as soon as they get it up enough, they're leaving. So those are risks that are associated with this technology mm -hmm. advancement, too. Yeah. And so if we were to look at the future effects then moving forward on the pandemic, you know, for savings and investments, 
investor behavior. What do you think or what do you already see happening? I have some of my own thoughts, but I'm curious from from your perch what you see. Uh, I'll go. Yeah, we'll see where my mind takes me on this one. I found one really interesting stat out of the Stanford Longevity Center as it related to the pandemic and some behavior. And this was the, you know, the kind of the move to home aspect, right? And this hybrid working uh, world. Um, You see about uh, this number is not perfect, but, you know, I'll I'll just use round numbers for for Mm -hmm sake of simplicity here, but you see about 15% of people that said, Hey, I want to be back in the office hundred percent that were displaced about 15% of people that said, I never want to go back in. And the vast majority of people instead said, look, hybrid's actually what I want, right? Some mix of office and at home. The disappointing thing about this whole change though, isn't that it's that Stanford, when they looked at people who then work at home, we sit way more. Yes. Than we ever did at the office. Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, that's really disappointing because the one thing we do know about sitting <laughs> is that it is a great predictor of your longevity, right? Yes. The more you sit, the less you live, period. Abs- right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so all of a sudden you're like, wow, that could be a really harmful human outcome is that we all move to working at home and like me. I don't leave this box, right? I am here all day. I don't get to go talk to anybody else out over here. Um, you know, I don't walk around. There's no water cooler. There's no break that's needed just to get away. Yeah. Um, so it's happening to a lot of people. Now that has impacts all the way across the board. The other thing uh, I think that's impacting a lot of the pandemic stuff is I do think that people kind of changed how they viewed housing again. And Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see if this sticks, right? Housing prices keep going up. um, But people are now thinking about, well, I can go live where I want to live, or I don't like to stay for whatever reason. I don't need to be my work. Um, And it seems that people are willing to to pay up at least in the last year and a half. There's obviously other factors going on, you know, different generations shifting. There was a lot of cash that was distributed by the government, low interest rates. So Mm -hmm. exactly which one's driving what, but there does seem to be a different perception about housing right now. I think a lot more people bought second homes during the pandemic too than ever before. And how does that impact people's finances moving forward? You know, if we have a pull down and then all of a sudden we're back to something, it's not identical to 08 timeframe as it relates to that, but uh, you know, it's still a, Still something I think that is going to have very long-term implications. Could be good, could be bad, but definitely there's some shifts there. Right. And you could take this analogy if I move back um, after 9-11, if you remember Greenspan and everyone lowered interest rates to Mm -hmm. help the economy, which worked, but that created the ultimate housing bubble seven or eight years later. And you couldn't have known in 2003, four or five that we were sowing the seeds of the ultimate great financial crisis. Like you said, was it a good thing at the time for some people? Probably, but it ended up being a negative thing for a lot of people, you know, later on. So good point. Yeah. I I will say there are a little bit better protections in place, not tremendously better because some of them went away (laughs) Uh, uh, again. Right. And and banks have changed some of their policies again. And you're seeing lending more akin back to that 2003, 1999, you know, all those different timeframes. But, you know, I'm not as worried as it, uh, you know, uh, like looking at it, I'm still not as worried, but it's definitely something to to consider as a potential risk out there. Okay, so I'm going to shift gears another 
step here. And as you know, one of the books that I interviewed Ron, uh, Ron on was this succession planning and continuity. And I'm wondering if you can give our listeners some insight. Why do you think advisors either delay or worse off, never complete a succession and continuity plan? And for the benefit of the audience, the backstory is when I worked on this book a couple of years ago, I got to interview Ron and Ron said, my first idea of a succession plan years ago, of course, I ran by my top clients and they said, Ron, that's a terrible idea. So he scrapped it. And now we know, you know what Carson has become. So in a cool way, he learned the journey by asking his top clients, but he had a plan and then he changed it. But what do you think the reason is why advisors just don't get it done? There's a lot of reasons that advisors don't get a good succession plan in place. I will say it here and I've said it before, you know, I, I think that's doing the clients a disservice by not having a succession plan in place. It doesn't mean everybody's needs to be the same, but we absolutely do need to have them. And one of the things I hate and I've, I didn't know I hated it till more recently, but you know, a lot of succession plans are, I talked to somebody, I say they're the almost plans yeah. and almost plans aren't plans. It's yeah. the, well, there's a guy down the street and we've talked about if anything happens to me, he'll come in and buy the business. And yeah, you know, Sometimes it's inside of companies, there's loose arrangements. Um, and to me, that's not enough. And I, I think it's, again, doing clients disservice, all of a sudden somebody dies, and then a new advisor that has almost zero interactions with these clients and their families are coming in as the backup. Uh, you know, th that's a terrible experience. And, you know, we I recently watched one of those occur. And, you know, I think, 30, 40% of the clients went and found a new advisor end of the day going through one of those almost plans. Um, so you could look at it as a selfish way. The 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 widow was, was you know got less economic value by not having a real plan in place. Mm -hmm. And a lot of households didn't feel like they were getting the vice they had. And, and that's really unfortunate because, uh, you know, I think about you know, we want to plan for a good life. We also need to plan for a good end of life. And that doesn't just mean we're going to die, but I mean, you know, end of our business life and we're going to transition out. But so many of advisors, uh, Ron says this too. He says, you know, they, they get kind of, you know, uh, you know, wealthy and lazy <laughs> yeah. over time, right? And he goes, you know, a lot of them retired years ago, just never told their clients and they just kind of drag it out. And the compensation model in this industry kind of supports that. Uh, and it can be a lot of work to get a new, really good person into the business. And you actually have to be willing to step away from things and right. move from an advisor to a CEO mentality to have a succession plan. And honestly, it took Ron a while to do that, right? You know, Ron has built in succession plans into his business and Carson Group and into our advisor businesses. But, it, you know, as you mentioned, right, he's had to learn from these things over time. The other challenge for the advice business, especially in the independent space, is actually growing the next generation of talents very difficult because most of these yes. businesses are truly small businesses. It's one to five people. It's very hard to train up a new CEO leader that has all the skills you're looking for in yourself in the next person who wants to stay with you for 10, 20, 30 years and not just go out and do their own firm. And so there's been a hesitancy in the advisor world to actually give younger people equity. And we're not talking about 50, 60 percent day one, but give people a percent or two. Yeah. Get them an owner mentality. And and we actually, you know, it wasn't even that long ago that we started to move to that. That's been a fairly recent thing is saying, look, mm -hmm. these younger advisors coming in, they're also one, they're in a world now where going out and starting a job is, you know, a company has been as easy as it's ever been. 
Right. The barriers to entry to doing that are as low as they've ever been. And so that competition, essentially, with the opportunity of starting your own business, right, it's it's easier than it's ever been. So if you're not going to include them as owners and owner mentality, it's going to be hard to create that succession plan. Yeah, great idea. And I do agree that especially the owner, CEO, founder, you know, letting go of some of those classic um managerial admin duties and really elevating to where they should be. First of all, that's not a a taught skill. You have to learn that. And then you have to have the people underneath you that you trust to delegate to. Because as we know, the old joke in coaching is people say, it'll take me longer to explain it, so I'll do it myself. And then that repeats itself forever, and you never get out of that trap. So I agree. So if you were to look forward um, in the next five years with all the trends happening, you know, the aggregation, the roll-ups, things like that. What do you see happening? Um, and maybe if you can break it down, if you're able to, almost by tranches, because we know mm-hmm. on the one end, there's a lot of aggregation. Some of the small firms, I think, if left alone, will struggle with technology. Just want your thoughts, you know, for the listeners, where you see this all going. I'll tell you one thing that I see the change in is moving to team-based approaches. There's been a lot of advisors and even inside bigger companies, they more or less operated as solo practitioners. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, one area that is going to get disrupted completely and not going to work as well. I I saw a stat from Advisorpedia or Investopedia that said 92% of clients now for wealth management clients want their advisor to be doing their taxes for them. only about 20% of advisors actually do taxes. Well, the reality is it's very hard to be a wealth manager, pick stocks, file taxes, do insurance, right? Help with legal arrangements. And, you know, long term, the more that we can bring that together, the better off the end person is. It's more coordinated. We know one thing is talking to the other thing. Technology helps with that. But a lot of stuff is built to be integrated, right? Or integratable, but it isn't actually integrated. It takes work to integrate large systems together. So mostly what kind of what I'd say more of the solo practitioner style advisors have done is they refer out the COIs. They refer out to attorneys and tax professionals, or if they're not insurance licensed out to insurance. But that's created a lot of friction, right, for clients mm-hmm. that all of a sudden, you know, we keep hearing this lately too, is, oh, my, my old advisor referred me out to a CPA firm and that CPA firm basically got sold and shut down. It's a big challenge, right? The CPAs, there's, I believe there's more CPA firms on the market right now it, with brokerage potential sales going on um, than there have ever been before. That's 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 a big deal. The CPAs have gotten beat up the last couple of years, and a lot of them want to get out the business. So good advisory firms are going to start bringing those services in-house. Why? Because they're serving a holistic client. It's not just tax planning. So you don't have to survive day in and day out just on getting that April 15th tax return done. You can add tax value throughout the year. So that's one thing I think is really going to occur. To be honest, if you can stay in the business and you can do that, it's going to be the best time ever to be in the financial planning and advice business. I also agree on the other side. I think that clients are getting better and better advice than they've ever gotten before. 
This is the best time to get financial advice that there's ever been. It's the most coordinated. We have the best technology, right? Fees on investments have been consistently coming down, right? Since May Day back in the <laughs> back in the day. And it's, it's a continue, that's a continued benefit for the consumer. And it's going to continue to benefit them, right? There's a lot of competition out there. Uh, I think the other thing is, I think a lot of people drop their guard to robo advice because everything that labeled itself as robo advice a decade ago wasn't actually robo advice. It was basically an Excel logic sheet on the back end. (laughs) There was no AI. If this, then this, right? That's what people competed against. And they said, oh, well, that didn't disrupt my business. Oh, the betterments of the world, like they did okay, but I haven't lost a client to betterment, right? Or I lost one, right? it didn't disrupt it. I think people dropped their guard, but the okay. reason that we dropped our guards because the name and what it was weren't aligned. It was not really robo advice, but we will get a robo advice platform that's truly giving advice sometime here in the future with AI. Uh, um, and that's going to be a game changer. I don't believe it's going to disrupt the human advisor, though. I think we're going to get a synergy between those two where people get a basic level of that. But if you look at millennials today, too, most of them still want a pairing or the option to talk to a human advisor. Um, We didn't grow up with that. Now, you could say the people who grow up with it might be accustomed to it, but we'd have to adapt to that. We we haven't lived through it yet. Um, So I I think that the the human advice model is going to be here through my life. I don't see it getting completely disrupted, uh, but it's definitely going to change. Yeah, absolutely. So um, before I do my summary and the wrap-up, the most important question Jamie, I saved till last on March Madness. So help me, and I haven't caught the games early around, but uh, between Davidson, Creighton, and Villanova, explain to the audience why those three names would be important to you. I love this because you told me you told it to me at dinner, and I'm like, how do you root for three teams at once? I just vote for UConn all the time. Yeah, well, the, the good news is, right, I, I told you, I still have an emotional, very clear packing order. Um, and it's it's kind of backwards almost, but it's like, you know, I went to Davidson as my undergrad. That's the one I love. Steph Curry was a freshman when I was a senior there, um, you know, and I saw that amazing journey. And and, and Bob, Coach Bob McKillop's one of probably the 10 best basketball coaches of all time from there. And, uh, you know, fantastic individual. I got to spend some time with him again last year. Uh, so I cheer for them, number one. Uh, then Villanova, I have what? three or four degrees from Villanova. I talked there too, a grad assistant. Uh, they fall in number two, and I'm currently a professor at Creighton. So, you know, them hearing that would probably say, hey, we've got to be number one. But still today, they're they're number three. Uh, and I, I struggle with that one between more because Villanova and Creighton play each other. And like, I, I tend to not watch the games because <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels a little bit emotionally, you know, that's the picking between your two favorite kids. But still today, uh, but I have Villanova going. I, I've got Villanova, my brackets winning. So I think they're a two seed. But, you know, I'm not one of those people that could live through, like, watching it and having picked against them, right? Like, I'd rather my teams lose. But, like, I'm never going to be watching the finals and have to, like, cheer for Gonzaga over Villanova. That's not happening. <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah, I no agree. chance. <laughs> right. Also, I was going to say, do you have a um... – a more in, a more difficult software to manage with DraftKings or something, knowing you're tracking so many different teams, right? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I don't bet on games. I'm not a gambler, uh, which you might have figured out from some of my behavior. I don't think we're any good at that. But I am in a I, I'm, I'm in a, a work one, a college one still that I do. And then uh, there's a group of uh, like kind of financial people that have one. 
that I joined too. So I'm, I'm in three this year. Good. Well, I'm going to, I'm rooting for UConn all the way, but UConn has to beat Gonzaga in their region. So if they're able to do that, they would have earned the right, you know, to the, uh, the trip to the final dance. So in summary, and this has been great, Jamie, thanks. I'm looking at all the things we spoke about. We started off with uh, assumptions can be wrong, right? With Napoleon, something I learned today that I would have gotten wrong if it was a quiz. Um, <laughs> so thank you. Uh, we learned about having a system, whether it's running your business or in your case, the discipline to run for that many days in a row. You said I had to have a system and you had to minimize the downside, right, of being injured. And that's a big thing with health and wellness today. I want to remind the audience, as I do martial arts and boxing, I'll have down days where I don't do any workouts just to let the body rest, make sure there's no swelling, because you don't want to keep pounding the same joints and the same parts of the body. As you said, it would not be smart long term. Um, we talked about technology being a big, a big disruptor. Not a, it's not always beneficial, though. Sometimes there's a, down, a downside to that. So we have to watch the good and the bad. We talked about equity for generation two, right? That's a big cutting trend in, uh, in the G2 thing is be smart about sharing the wealth rather than try to hoard it all. Um, we talked about team-based approaches, right? Going on with tax planning mm -hmm. and all that. And then we also talked about uh, dropping our guard on things like robo-advisors, which you're correct. For a long time, the term had such a negative connotation that we didn't worry about it. We're like, ah, it's just a robo-advisor but they have snuck up and will continue to get better, especially with, um, with the AI and the technology. So we covered a lot of great topics. And then I'd like to thank Jamie. And where can people reach you directly at? Obviously, we know Ron is everywhere, and that's awesome. But if they want to reach out to you, uh, how can they get a hold of you? Absolutely. If anyone re wants to reach out to me, uh, two easiest ways are one, I've got a website, jamiehopkins.com. And there's a form contact thing on there. It goes right to my email, which comes right to my phone. I'm also most active on social media on Twitter. Uh, and uh, my handle is at retirement risks. And yeah, I guess I'll plug that at the end too, right? I have my own book, Rewirement, which is about behavioral finance and retirement. So just a little bit different of a, a twist on that. But at any of those places, feel free to reach out to me at any point. And yeah, but, you know, Ron, as you said, pretty much everywhere. Carson Group, you can, you know, pretty much also everywhere at this point, but uh, easy to find us. Great. And by the way, I'm going to also prospectively and proactively say, as I'm starting to do some uh, Twitter videos to promote my new book, if I use the writing, the handwriting technique, I'll give you complete credit. I told you I love watching when you come out, when you do that. So for anyone that knows Jamie's become well known for writing on a piece of paper, instead of having everything choreographed. And I think I know as a listener, I actually enjoy that. Yeah. Well, we'll do, we'll do one to close out the show then. Right. All right. So. Great. <laughs> I love it. Right. And, and, and these always look terrible on purpose. Right. So, so, you know, we'll do, we'll do, we got a red one here. Right. Yep. Health and wellness. Right. Take care of your health. That leads to your wellness together. You're going to lead a, leave a better life. Right. So, Let's do that. Go forward. Make great things happen today. Awesome. Great. Thanks, Jamie. So until next time, thank you for joining me on the Succession Fit podcast, and we'll be in touch with uh, more updates.